All right. Well, it's good to be here. If we haven't met, my name is Robert Frazier, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, it's been it's been good. I this is my second week back preaching after a little time off in July. So it's it's good to be here with you. We've been going through the whole Bible in a year, and that has been overwhelming and wonderful to try to just hit a lot of big stuff along the way. And I think everybody who's taught throughout the year, they've come away just with like a, a deeper appreciation and understanding of the Bible and how it fits together. Um, but first, I just want to give you a little update. This week, Malia and I got to go to uh, the beautiful metropolis of Kansas City, Missouri, to, uh, on Monday. Sun, last Sunday, we left. And uh, the reason we're there is we're a part of a, uh, a network of churches called the uh, the New Thing Network. I got a picture of the website right here, newthing.org. And New Thing is a, it's a broad, um, interconnected network of churches that plant churches. And so when we launched, we had connected with them before we launched, and they supported us with, with a little bit of money and a lot of relationships and friends who would work with us. And uh, they have a couple of gatherings throughout the year. In November, I head to Chicago for some meetings um, with them. And then uh, the exponential conference that we put on, they're deeply connected with new things. So we're able to bring in the exponential conference in April here to Boise. Um, and then during the summer, we meet up in August. And it's a group of people who lead um, networks and movements of churches who are planting churches. And Malia and I got to go for the second time this year. And it was wonderful. Um, we, we got to sit down with a group about, what, 40 40, 50 pastors from around the United States, and it's a global movement. You can see on this next slide, uh, just to give you a little little picture, so the churches planted over the last three years by the New Thing Network. In 2016, it was 476. In 2017, it was 509. And in 2018, it was almost 600 churches planted globally as a part of the New Thing Network. And our belief is that healthy things grow and multiply. And so when we build healthy churches filled with Jesus followers, what happens is people start their faith journey with us. We grow, and then we send out leaders who will start new communities. Because something incredible happens when you have a leader or a, or a group of leaders who are called to plant a new church, out of nothing, God brings something. So Redemption Hill, three years ago, it was an idea in our heads and a few friends who were getting together to pray. And here we are three years later, and God's been doing some incredible stuff to help us to impact our community, to connect with people around us. And we believe that the vision of God is to keep multiplying communities like this into every neighborhood in the world. Because it's groups like this who are committed to serving the community that transform things. Jesus gives us this command in Matthew 28. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you till the end of the age. And that was the commissioning to his disciples to go. And as they go, they're not to plant churches. Planting churches is a byproduct of making disciples. Our call is to help people learn to walk in the way of Jesus, to learn what Jesus said, what he did, and how to do our lives the same way as Jesus, to be transformed by the good news that we are accepted by God because of what he did for us, and then to join him in that. And the gospel and this, this church planting thing is important, not just because it's good to have a new little church on every neighborhood corner. 
It's not just because we want to be an organization that's growing rather than dying. We plant churches because the gospel is transformational. Many of you have experienced that. When you started to follow in the way of Jesus, your life was transformed. All of a sudden, instead of being drawn to destruction and chaos and your life being broken in every way possible, little, little parts of your life start to be restored. Your heart starts to find healing and hope for a better day tomorrow. All of a sudden, the relationships around you and your family start to be transformed because the gospel is bringing love and forgiveness and grace and hope into a relationship that didn't have it before. And in our neighborhoods, when people start to walk in the way of Jesus, our neighborhoods are transformed, and the gospel works, Jesus says it works like yeast. That's how he describes his kingdom, is it's like yeast. And, it, and if you have ever done, you know, made bread or made beer, you know that yeast works its way into every part and every crevice, anywhere where there's some carbohydrates to consume, the yeast will grow and move. And that's what happens with the kingdom of God is since the beginning of the Jesus movement, it has been moving and growing and finding its way into every neighborhood and soul and person on the planet. And we're part of this global movement that's happening. So I just want to give you a little insight into what we're connected with. And here locally, we've been building a network called the City Network, and it's a group of 30 or 40 churches who are committed together to try to plant 200 churches in our valley. And actually, one of them is Gathering 208. This is Karen. You can just raise your hand. Uh, she, she just moved here from South Dakota with a team at Gathering 208 to plant this winter, right? This January? Next spring. Okay, so they're in the process. Make sure to say hi to her. And, uh, you know, we're, we, we want to be supportive of every church planner that comes into town and help them along. So make sure to connect with her. A um, few ways that like you can help. I know I'm, I'm kind of talking big and like there's this literally a worldwide movement of thousands of churches that you're a part of. Like what does it look like for us to, to be a part of that? The first thing you can do and the best thing you can do to transform our world is to learn to walk in the way of Jesus deeper and better. Every part of your life that's transformed by the gospel brings life into the world. And so it starts really locally with you. Um, Start to live your life in a way that's connected with people who are far from God. Have dinners, have events, do fun stuff with your kids. Like, go volunteer at your kid's school, not because they guilted you into it, but because there's people there who need Jesus. Um, go to Friday park days and meet moms and families who are wanting to connect and get in a relationship. Live connected with people far from God because that's the only way that the gospel works into their lives is this is a contact sport. You got to get up close for the gospel to, to transform lives. So live connected with people who are far from God. We're learning together to share the story of God and to share our own testimonies of how God has transformed our lives. So that's the simplest way you can share the hope of the gospel is just tell people, you know what? I was lost and I was broken and now I'm finding healing and restoration in God. It's a two-part story. I was this, now I'm this, and I'm finding life in Jesus. And do you want to hang out with me as I do that. It's a pretty simple invitation, and, and we just need to do that over and over again. And then there's a second part to that, and that's that we're going to be multiplying our community and sending people to go lead new communities. And so all of us have a part to play in that. 
all of you have a role to play um, from putting on church and doing Sunday morning and our, our tech and our worship and our kids and our hospitality. Like you need to know that stuff so that you're good at taking care of and doing this family and community life. But also you need to learn to be a great leader. You need to learn to make disciples. You need to learn to follow in the way of Jesus in such a way that your life is something that we want to multiply into other people. So I want to challenge you. Now's the time. The world needs you to lean in and be the follower of Jesus that you were made to be. All right? Sound good? Let's do it. All right. Great. <laughs> All right, so uh, that's it uh, as far as the announcements portion of the sermon. Uh, one last thing, we're going to have baptisms at our community camp out over Labor Day. So if you've never been baptized before or if your kids are wanting to be baptized, just let me know and we'll have some conversations and get ready for it. But it's always a beautiful time in our community. to It's, it's what we do to, it, to signify that we've become a part of God's family. We join in by dunking ourselves in water like we're getting born again, literally, into a new family. That's the picture we're supposed to have. So come join us for that. All right. Now, we're in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the prophets who was right at the end of Israel's—so Israel had just been— taken over by the Babylonian kingdom, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom was still intact, and Jeremiah was one of the last prophets to the southern kingdom and to the world. And so we're going to watch the Bible Project video just to give an overview. Yeah, those videos are incredible, especially if, if you're trying to read Jeremiah for the first time, and you open it up, and it's got all this stuff about these judgments and these historical characters and, like, Israel's place and all these things. It feels really overwhelming. But if you have a video like that and then you stop and you have the website in front of you and you read through Jeremiah and you kind of have the outline so you know what everything fits and how it fits, that's why, we're, that's why we're showing these videos, that's why we're going through this is so you have a big picture. Now that we have the big picture of the video and the major theme of Jeremiah, which is that God is working towards the promises he made, this forever covenant with the family of Abraham that all nations will be blessed through them even when they're unfaithful to God. And if they want to experience the blessing of being a part of God's thing, then they should not rebel and they should stay in alignment with God. But Israel obviously fails over and over again. Jeremiah has kind of a particular place, and I want to dive into the beginning of Jeremiah's life because as a prophet, he has a terrible, terrible job, okay? Who likes the idea of being a prophet to a nation? Anybody? There's... Yeah, it's, it's a terrible job. Just ask anybody who's ever written anything about politics. Like, you will literally get just every bit of hate mail that you can imagine from both sides if you speak prophetically because our world is opposed to God. And so when you speak for God and the world around you is opposed to God, what happens? Well, they kill the messenger. Like, that's, that's the natural thing. Jeremiah was called as a prophet, and what, what I want to do is I want to dive into the beginning of his life where he was called because I think that it reveals something for us about our calling as people. So let's start with that word calling. It's kind of a religious term, right? Like it, 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 it conjures up in your mind um, like a, a pastor or a priest or a prophet. They'll tell the story of how they were called because nobody would do these sorts of jobs unless they had a deep sense that they had to do it because God was calling them summoning them. Uh, the word call uh, or calling comes from the word vocare in Latin. 
Um, that's, that's the idea that we get of vocation, okay? Calling. Vocare is to call. Um, so calling is literally a summoning. It's not something you choose. It's not something that is um, built into you, but it's something that's called out of you. And so what God does is he looks around and he prepares people and then he points to them and he says, I've got something for you. That's what calling is. Um, in, in the ancient world and even, even in modern times in some places, um, a calling or a vocation was literally somebody walking along, probably somebody who's close to you, a family member, your father, or somebody who lives close by, and they would say, you know what? I think you have good hands, and you work hard. You should come be a part of my blacksmith, um, my blacksmith shop, and I'm going to teach you how to do those things. And so the word idea of calling or vocation comes from apprenticeship where you were invited to train to learn to be an apprentice in a way. And that's what happens with prophets, and that's what happens here with Jeremiah, is that God calls him and wants to prepare him to do this thing. Um, now, now, we've turned calling into kind of this um, mystical, magical, perfect journey of discovering our true selves. Like when someone says, I found my calling, what are they saying? I found a job I don't hate, right? Like that's like your calling is I found a job that I, I like some and it's not too hard or it, it fulfills my passions. But really the way we think about calling is kind of this like narcissism. Um, it's, it's not about the function of the job, but it's like this, this radical individualism of we see ourselves and our work as self-expression. Do you guys think about your work as an expression of who you are, as an extension of who you are? And so we think of our work and our job as I need to find a calling that reflects how I see myself. Does this sound familiar? This is the way most people think. This is the way most young adults especially think until they have their first job and they realize how hard it is to find a place where you get paid to do the things you like to do because no one wants to pay you to do the things you like to do. It's a weird conundrum we all have, right? But um, we've kind of turned into this thing where rather than spend our energy for economic and social good, we look for opportunities to express ourselves in ways that show our values. Um, and ultimately, you might hear this, and I was reminded of it at our New Thing gathering this week, but um, they said this, uh, actually Larry Osborne said this line, he said, opportunities are temptations in disguise, and potential is a cruel mistress. And here's what he meant by that. When you think about reaching your potential, what you're thinking about is you want to maximize you being the very best you can be at something. And what's that really about? It's about you. It's about you getting, you know, it's, it's kind of built on Maslow's kind of self-actualization philosophy that the highest good we can do is to become our highest version of ourselves. That's the philosophy of our world. And uh, Dad and I were talking yesterday about this transhumanism um, that has been born out of Silicon Valley, which literally believes that if we continue to incrementally increase how we um, use technology and how we live as human beings, then eventually we will achieve some sort of humanism that's beyond these bodies that are immortal. And we can discover ways of existing beyond this life and this body. 
Have you heard this philosophy? It's like it's, it's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and the whole crew, that's what they're working towards is this sort of um, ultimate human reality. That's how we think about work, but that sort of potential is a cruel mistress because it will never leave you satisfied. And opportunities come along, and we think that every opportunity is something that we have to grab because we don't know when the next opportunity is coming. And so we think that our calling is whatever comes along. We think that our calling is whatever's in front of us because we are afraid of what could come next. Now, all of us want good work. We want to spend our lives in things that matter. Um, We want to spend our lives in things that create well-being and provides for us and our family. That's not new, but demanding that our jobs be lucrative, enjoyable, and meaningful and altruistic is an unreasonable demand for a job, okay? In case you're holding out for that, there's literally no job that's going to give you all four of those things. We get paid to do stuff that's not enjoyable. And even in a job, I have a friend who has a PhD in uh, human resources, which sounds like the worst thing in the world to me, but he has, a hum- he has a PhD in human resources. He was telling me that the best job fit of any job you'll find, you will have a good job fit 80% of the time. That means one day of the week, a whole day of the week, you're doing crap you don't want to do. In the best possible job fit, you're spending eight hours a week doing stuff that's really unenjoyable. And for most of us, we can't get to that 80%. But calling and vocation, they're not things that we necessarily choose. They're things that other people invite us into because they see something in us more than we can see of ourselves. And as followers of Jesus in this kingdom of God, we have a second calling that goes alongside of our vocation. And it's a particular calling that has many, many different expressions. And we, we see language in the work of Jeremiah's calling. So if you can turn to chapter 1 of Jeremiah, that's where we're going to be for most of today. In verse 4, it says this. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, now Jeremiah is saying that the word of the Lord came to him and told him that he was chosen from before he was born to have a particular role and have a particular thing that God has for him. Now, what we see in, in David and in Isaiah as well is that this is not something that is strictly for Jeremiah, but God has been purposing and preparing each of us for his work from the beginning of time. And as he creates us in our mother's wombs, he is setting the stage for the things that he has made us for. So like Jeremiah, we all have callings from God. And our work is then to discover these callings. Our job is to to learn the way of Jesus and to lean into our callings with our gifts and discover along the way with the help of others what our assignment is in God's family work. We have a family business. We all have a role to play. And our job is to ask God and other people to help us discover where we fit best. Not where we can be actualized, but where God can use us in the way he's set us aside to be used. Now often, and and I hear this from people time to time where they say, you know what, I just, I'm not really living out of my strengths. That's the way people say it. 
um, what they're saying is that they don't like their assignment. <laughs> they don't like the job that they have, or they feel like there's something more important that they should be doing. They have leadership skills. They have um, spiritual gifts that are unrealized. They have potential that they haven't quite brought to fruition. Now, I think that all of those things are true. But ultimately, those lists of gifts and callings and roles in the church are things that we grow into as we're faithful with the things God gives us. This, this thing that God gives us as the family God, this family business, is not about you. You are a part of a bigger plan, a cosmic story that we enter into. So these lists, there's, there's some leadership gifts in the church. Um, we've read through Ephesians 4 many times. The apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. You have the servant, which is the word deacon in Greek. Um, you have the words of wisdom. You have faith, healing, discernment, giving. None of these gifts that you're given, they're not described as gifts for you, you're described as a gift to the church. Have you ever realized that? You read Ephesians 4, it says, God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the building up of the saints. The gifts are not being an apostle, being a prophet, being an evangelist, being a shepherd, or a teacher. The gifts are the people that God has given to lead. And so that changes the way we think about our calling. It changes the way, because so often people think of, I have this gift for me, and when I feel like it, I can opt in to use it how I want for other people. Have you ever felt that way? Like you're in charge of your gifts? That's not the way God sees it. You're in the family business. He's got an assignment for you, and he's shown you what you're supposed to be doing, and most of the time, you're ignoring his emails. <laughs> You are pretending like you weren't really in the meeting when he told you what to do, or you're slacking off. That's the way we treat our calling, as if it doesn't matter, as if it's a voluntary thing that we dive into. But Jeremiah wasn't a prophet for his own benefit. He was a prophet so that the people of Israel would know and return to God. And Jeremiah, like many of us, didn't feel like he had what it took for this calling. He felt... Like, like he, was, he was too young and he didn't have what it took. Read verse 6 with me. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. I'm just a teenager. I'm just a kid. Don't call me out. And many of us think that this calling and our gifting that God has given each one of us should be... Um, should be like a, a set of, we think, mystical, magical gifts that just all of a sudden express themselves when we're put into the right situation. Do you guys imagine that? Like a sword in the stone, a sword in the stone sort of moment? Like if you get put in those moments and then your gifts will be realized and you'll pull the stone out and it will be demonstrated that that is your gift and that is your calling. But what we see with Jeremiah is that God calls him as a youth and uses him throughout his life as God develops him. Our calling comes with equipping, not with magical competence. It's not a talent that just is innate in us. It's something that God brings to life as we grow in Christ-likeness. Because God is looking for willing servants, not gifted savants. 
God is looking for willing servants who will grow into their gifts, not gifted savants who think it's all about them and their talent. He'd rather we struggle and learn and fail because it makes us reliant on him and humble, just like the calling of an apprentice. When apprentices are called, you know how much they know? Nothing. They might have the beginnings of a little bit of talent in that area or an aptitude, but how much does a young blacksmith know about blacksmithing? Less than nothing, because they think they know something. They know almost nothing. You guys have seen this, this diagram of the, the work of learning, and there's kind of four stages, right? You've got, it starts with unconscious incompetence. This is where you feel really like, I could do that because you don't know how hard it is. So you look at another job, you look at blacksmithing, and you think, what is it? It's just fire and metal, and you just put it, you know, make it go into place. And I could figure that out. I'm smarter than most blacksmiths I know. And so you think that you know it. And then you learn a little bit, and you go into the valley, the valley of conscious incompetence, where you know how little you know. And the more you learn, the more you feel like there's a breadth of knowledge and experience that you haven't yet entered into. Who has felt the valley before? It's, it's about the third week of a new job, right? You step in and all of a sudden you've got a, a, a lay of the land of all the ways that you don't know what you need to know. And so then you start faking it, right, at that point because you're just so overwhelmed. That's what happens when we learn is we get into this valley of the conscious incompetence, and we feel like we don't have what it takes. And Jeremiah felt that distinctly. Internally, he's like, I'm just a kid. Don't ask me to lead. Don't ask me to speak. I don't have those gifts. God, you got the wrong guy. Who here has felt like, God, you have the wrong person for this role? Who here has felt like, God, there must be somebody else? We all go through that. And then over time, we, we develop into conscious competence, which is we have to try hard to do it, and then we do it well. When, like, I'm, I'm at that stage with administrative tasks, where I have to work really hard, and I can make it happen, and I can build systems of organization, but it's like the least, it's the thing that I'm least likely to enjoy doing in my work. Like, I just do it all the time, but I just do it because I have to. It's not easy. And then over time, what happens is the, the more you do it, the better you get at it. You get to unconscious competence where it has become a part of you. There's a few things in my life where I can just do them because I've done them for so long. And I, part of me doesn't even enjoy those things as much anymore because I don't have to work at them and I don't know how to get better at them. You know? Like it's those, those sorts of things where you, you feel so comfortable that it just comes naturally. And some of you are at that point in your job and you're bored. And some of you are at that point in your job and you're working on your hobbies. And some of you are at that point in your job and you're saying, I'm miserable because you're not growing and learning. You don't know how to take that next step into the next level. And that's the same way it is with our calling is that it doesn't, it doesn't come with a set of here's the magical tools that you need. God is inviting you to grow as an apprentice. And it's not just the internal voice telling you that you're not good enough, but there's external voices who are saying, look at him. Go to verse 7. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. There's going to be these, these doubters. There's going to be haters. There's going to be people who look at you and say, that's not the right person for the job. 
God, you got it wrong. There's going to be people who look at you and say, why are you trying so hard? It's not a good fit. There's going to be people who look at you and say, you're making me look bad. Quit working so hard. There's going to be people around you who look at you and say, look at you, Mr. and Mrs. Goody Two-Shoes and all your, you know, trying to be Jesus-like. And it's going to, there's going to be attention in you and in them because you're seeking God. But we have to persevere. And that only comes, like God is at work in this opposition because he wants us to be tough and he wants us to rely on him. As a parent, the thing that I want most is I want resilient kids. I want tough kids that can deal with psychological pain, not abuse. I want them to deal with the hardships of this world around them and know how to keep moving forward when they don't have what it takes. God is the exact same way. He allows us to live in this world and to experience suffering and pain because he wants us to become more like him by relying on him. Not because we have what it takes on the inside, but because when it's really hard, we have to lean into him. Uh, you know, my kids, they're, they're knuckleheads, but um, when they're learning... And when they're really frustrated, they ask for help. They don't want to ask for help most of the time, but when they're really learning and they're leaning in and they're frustrated, they ask for help. And that's the same way it is in our spiritual life. And for Jeremiah, he was supposed to speak with authority from God to the people as a young person. And he thought that his authority should be in his position. That if he's made the high priest or if he's given a position of ruling, then people will have to listen to him. And we kind of imagine that prophets, um, that prophets were like given a position of prominence in ancient Israel. Do you kind of imagine that? That like they had like a, an office that they went and worked at and that people would come to them and ask for prophecy. But that wasn't the way it worked, okay? Prophets were basically on the outside and only by the authority of God's word... It's not the position, and it's not their own moral authority, but the power comes from God and his words. It comes from the Father. And so we don't rely on human power systems to make things happen in God's kingdom. We don't, we don't rely on the way of this world and manipulation and coercion and money and intimidation to get what we want. Jeremiah was a little kid a skinny little kid, and he'd stand up and say, thus says the Lord. And it wasn't because he was powerful, and it wasn't because he was rich, and it wasn't because he was old and wise, but all he had was, this is what God told me. And I think that too often when, when we think about our calling, we think that it, it has to be because we're great at something, that we get to make an impact. Like, people are going to come to Christ because I got really good at sharing my story, and people are going to be transformed in our neighborhood because, like, I've been reading a great book about how to be a good neighbor. And we think that if we learn these skills, then, like, the world around us is going to be transformed because we've got great technology. But what God says is that our authority doesn't come from our position and it doesn't come from our training, but it comes from his Spirit's power. In verse 9, it says this, then the Lord put out his hand, and he touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck you up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. 
Jeremiah, by his words, would speak out God's plans. And they weren't going to come to life because Jeremiah spoke them. They were going to come to be because God had purposed them. And so he's just learning to play his part in the story. Who here thinks, you don't have to raise your hand, I know it's all of you. Who here thinks that you're the hero of your story? That's the way we all read our lives, is that this story is about me. And I'm the hero, and I'm on the hero's journey, or the hero's quest, or I'm on the journey of self-discovery. But ultimately, this story is about a different hero and a different king. And we all have parts to play in this larger story. And Jeremiah fundamentally understood that, that he had a bit part to play. God's word is so powerful that even when it is words of destruction, it is good news to those to those who want God and who want repentance and who want to learn his way, the destruction that comes with disobeying him is good news because they know how to enter into a relationship with him. Every threat that God gives the people is, hey, if you keep going down this road, there's going to be destruction. So quit it and come back to me and I will bless you. Every single prophecy comes with that sort of a promise that this is what's going to happen because you're so hard-hearted, but if you return to me, I will care for you and I'll bless you. God's, God's words are so powerful that if we want to please God, we just speak those words. Whoever we speak to, we do it boldly, knowing that we don't live for their approval. Jeremiah was loving people by not living to please them. He was loving the nation by speaking judgment over them. He was loving them by being a, a herald of coming disaster so that they could avoid the, the pain that was coming. Um, there's a young guy I've been working with for a couple years, and his, he's, he's a knucklehead, and he makes bad decisions at every single turn. And, he's, and I, I spent a lot of time with him last year, and he's been struggling with you know, in and out of jail and alcohol and drugs and just been struggling. And I kept him around, and I had him help me work on my house last summer as we were doing an addition. And we would, we'd hang out, we'd talk, we would joke around, and then every week we'd have a really hard conversation. And I'd say, buddy, you know what you're doing isn't going to bring life. You know what you're doing is going to lead to destruction. I don't need to tell you that but I want you to know that I'm here for you when you're ready. In a hard conversation basically every week all of last summer, and just this week I got an email from him saying, your words and those conversations told me that when I was ready I could come back. And now he is. He's back in recovery. He's back pursuing God and has transformed his life. It's not by my power. It's not by my words, but I spoke truth and God's words did its work. That's what our call is. Um, yeah. So often, um, we, we, want, we, we want this assurance that we're going to win with God. Like, do, you, do you want that assurance that, like, your life, like, you're going to win? You're going to be on his team, and if you do stuff right, it's going to go well, and things are going to be okay. Like, that's kind of, like, our, all of us are kind of hoping that that's, that's true. But if you look at Jeremiah, his promise is like, I'm on God's team, 
and you guys aren't, and you're not going to be, and it's going to come with destruction. And so Jeremiah is speaking forward this reality that just like Babylon took over the north and God stopped them at the border, he's going to let them roll through and take Jerusalem too. It's only a matter of time. It's about a 20, 30-year time frame between the time he starts saying it and the time that happens. And then he has to live through it. But Jeremiah is special because he's one of those prophets that gets to speak about the reality and the truth of what's going to come. He sees Babylon coming along, but he also sees that God is going to withhold all of his judgment because he has a plan. He still has a plan for Israel to play in his story, even when they're not a part of what he's up to. In chapter 31, verse 1, we get a little glimpse of what's coming ahead. It says, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. We don't know what part we have to play and how it fits in this long scheme of things, but we know that it's an important part to play. Just like in the theater, in the big story of life, there are no small parts, just small actors. And if we lean into the parts that we have, if we don't like our parts, if, if we don't, if we complain because we don't get to choose our assignments, we can sit out and we can soak like a child or we can take up our place in this bigger story, our small place in this giant cosmic story that's being written as we speak. And we can see our callings not about us, but about what God's doing. And one thing that I find comforting about that is that this is not just about our work, but it's about our place and understanding our suffering, the hard things that come along that God has a plan and a purpose for us in the hard times and in the pain that we, that we have. Jeremiah, he's known as the lamenting prophet or the crying prophet because throughout both Lamentations and Jeremiah, he would just pour out his pain and, and how hurt he was by the reality of what he was watching unfold. He's, he's kind of like me when I'm watching across the room and I see my son making a very bad decision about the way he's standing precariously on top of the counter. And I'm like, Ike, stop. <laughs> just slowly sit down. And then he just leans forward, tumbles down, hits the, hits, hits the, uh, the stool on the way down, hits the floor. And like Jeremiah is watching this unfold in Israel, right? Like he, he can see what's coming in the future, and, he, and he's just saying, stop. Slow down. You're going the wrong way. And he's got to watch it slowly unfold into this thing. But the suffering that he sees is a part of God's plan to bring restoration. Until Israel is truly humbled, they won't be ready to receive the Messiah. As long as they think that this story, and Israel's problem throughout all of Scripture is that they think the story's about them. They think it's about their special place and their calling as God's anointed people. But they were always just meant to be the ones who would bring forth the Messiah, who would be a blessing to all the nations. And until they get that, until they're truly humbled and realize that God will let them be destroyed almost to oblivion because they think it's about them, 
then God can bring the Messiah that they're waiting for because it won't come in the, in the way that they expected. Um, Jeremiah 31, 31, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in them, and they will write it on their hearts. So at the beginning, we read Jeremiah has this, um, what one of our new thing uh, leaders calls an I see in you conversation. Have you ever had one of these conversations? Somebody that you know says, hey, you know what? I see in you something that you don't see. Maybe it's a gift. Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe it's an issue. Maybe it's an area of growth. And they come along and say, I see in you. It's a challenge, and it's an invitation for us to lean in alongside our work into the calling that God has for us. I've had a few of them along in my life. One of them was when I came back to faith. Somebody said, I see in you brokenness, and I know how God can bring healing. And then along the way, somebody came along and said, I see in you someone who can be a leader and someone who can help people discover life with God. I'm going to show you how to do it. And then they brought me under their wing. And then before we planted uh, Redemption Hill, I had somebody come along and said, I see in you someone who can start new churches, and that's what you should do. And it was the beginning of this journey for us. This I see in you conversation that God has with Jeremiah is, I have a plan for you. It's time to discover your purpose. And that's what we're all trying to do is to ask God, where, where are we supposed to be? He wants, he wants to take our lives, and he wants to hijack our lives for his kingdom. He doesn't want to give you another job, okay? Like, God doesn't want to give you a second calling. He wants your calling to hijack the rest of your life. He wants to take your relationships from your work, and he wants to insert you there as a, kingdom's, as a, as a kingdom presence of wisdom and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. He wants to take your work life and use it to show people the life that he has for others. He wants to take your family and have you see it not as a burden, but an opportunity to love and to be loved like God loves us. He wants you to see your children not as something to get through or to survive, but as a calling to disciple and show them how to walk in the way of Jesus. He wants to take your neighborhood and your friendships, and he wants to use them for relationships and conversations where your gift and your story and your calling lead to transformed lives. He wants to take your care for others, and he wants to use that and and your passion for others and help people see God's love for them. He wants to take you faithfully fulfilling your duties at work and through it show God's faithfulness. He wants to take your leadership gift as an entrepreneur, a teacher, a visionary, a communicator, and he wants to use you as a gift to build up the body of Christ, training her to her full potential. He wants to take your passion for justice. He wants to use it to bring about healing and restoration in a world that's desperate for good news. So where has God had those I see in you conversations with you? Where has he poked you and prodded you? Where, when a a need comes up, do you feel burdened? 
Where do you see brokenness in the world and feel called to lean in? Where are you hiding from God and his calling in your life? It's, it's probably bringing some stuff up in you as I talk about it. You're probably feeling some anxiety and some excitement and some confusion and some pain. Don't ignore that. Sit in it. Lean in and listen like Jeremiah did. You've got some number of days left. Some of you, it's a lot less than you realize. All of those days are his. Your body, your time, your life is his. And if we're missing out on what he's called us to, then we're just basically wasting this precious time that he's given us. So what's next? When, when God has those I see in you conversations, the calling is an invitation to apprenticeship. It's to developing your spiritual gifts so that you're fruitful. You develop a deepening de uh, discipleship of Jesus so that it's not just a thing that you do every once in a while when you feel like it. It becomes a part of the rhythms of your life. There's a few discipleship groups that are starting to be formed in our church. And if, if you're saying, I need to lean in and grow, now's the time. Let me know and we'll get you connected with one of those groups. Don't miss. So have you, have you ever met like a 25-year-old who wants a job where they make six figures and have lots of responsibility and don't understand why they have to wait 10 years? It's called millennial-itis, I think is the name of it. Um, and... A lot of us feel that about our spiritual lives is that either I have everything now or I'm never really going to get it. But that's not the way it works in our spiritual lives and in our discipleship. Um, what God wants to do is he, he has work for you to do as you grow in Christ-likeness. So don't wait until you've reached the fulfillment of your discipleship to start serving, to start living into your calling. Do it immediately. Find ways to fail at it, because the best way to be a great blacksmith is to make some terrible horseshoes, okay? That's the only way you get great at being a blacksmith, is you make bad horseshoes, because over time, you learn to grow. And so what we're going to do is, as a community, we're going to keep growing. We're going to show up week in and week out. We're going to read the Bible together. We're going to talk about it. We're going to meet up in small groups, and we're going to share our lives together. We're going to join together in service to our community and to our neighborhoods, and we're going to ask God, what do you see in me, and where can I take my life? What am I assigned to, and how can I live into it? There are vital roles that each of us have to play, but unless we show up, God can't use us. Verse 17, back in chapter 1, is where I want to end. He says this, But you, Jeremiah, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. Now, I know that there's a popular book called Girl, Wash Your Face. I'm going to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a, a new book called Boy, Dress Yourself for Work. <laughs> uh, this, this is the calling. Show up. Just show up. God will do the work if you show up. If you don't show up, nothing happens. But if you show up, God will do some incredible things. Let's pray together, and I'll invite the rest of the band to come on up. Uh, Lord God, we want to, like Jeremiah, be faithful to take our lives and invest it in what you've called us to. 
Help us to understand and be clear about what those things are and how to invest these hours and these times and these days of our lives for the gospel kingdom moving forward. God, take our fears and our anxiety and help us to trust you with them. Take the worries that we have and the the hardships that we're experiencing and help us to see them as a part of your plan and ask, God, what are you doing right now in these moments? How are you entering into this suffering? What is this time for and how can I be preparing for what's next and what work do you have for me right now? Lord God, even if we're sad, let us be faithful like Jeremiah. In your name we pray. Amen.